The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Kathy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, good to be with you. And um, we are uh, now today on our third of several messages in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And uh, this is a letter that is, um, that is full of Christ. I mean, every, every letter, every book of the Bible can be described that way. Uh, This one is especially explicit about the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ in the universe and in the lives of of those that he loves. So uh, I'm going to start with a quote today from uh, the dictator, Joseph Stalin, who said this, The death of one man is a tragedy, but the death of a million is a statistic. The death of one man is a tragedy, but the death of a million is a statistic. Now, we're coming off of a week of tornadoes and hurricanes, and I'm not sure how you respond when, um, you know, we get news reports of, of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of people impacted by disasters and things of the sort. But for me, it, it, it starts with a, a moment of grief and sadness, uh, and then it leads to usually a, a moment of, of brief prayer for the people who are being affected, and then I move on with my day. Titans are at noon, uh, that sort of thing. And um, this past week was different, though, because we have relatives 
who are uh, living in the pathway of the hurricanes and the tornadoes. And suddenly, uh, we're talking about people we know, uh, people who if they were injured, it would, it would have a ripple effect of affecting all of us who love them. And it's different. But I think one of the things that the passage in front of us today demonstrates is that there is no difference with God, that God loves the masses of people just as God loves and cares for one individual person. You think of the, the death of Lazarus, which was uh, the friend uh, who's described as the one Jesus loves. Jesus and his disciples show up at the tomb of Lazarus. It says Jesus weeps. It says he gets upset with death. It says that he tends by name to Mary and Martha, the sisters of, of the deceased Lazarus. He cares for them deeply as individuals. But then if we go to the book of Jonah, it has this curious finish where, you know, you've got this, this reluctant prophet who runs away from the call of God. He doesn't want to see the Ninevites um, thrive in the gospel. He doesn't want to see them uh, be loved and changed by God. He's angry at them. He resents them because the Ninevites have been a hurtful people to him and his people, and God forces him uh, to, to go to Nineveh. Uh, you can read the story. And he preaches the gospel. He preaches the truth. And they're all converted. They experience renewal. And Jonah is really upset. He's embittered. And he's feeling sorry for himself up on a hill uh, in the heat. And God says this. The, the, the book ends very abruptly. Shall, not, shall I and shall not you have compassion on 120,000 people? You know, God loves with compassion the masses in the same way that he loves with compassion individuals. There's no distinction. Stalin's quote doesn't, um, doesn't compute with God or anyone who has the heart of God in them, and the Apostle Paul is one of those. He's writing to Gentiles, and it's made clear in this passage that he has never met the people that he's writing to. They have never met him. They have never been with him face to face. That's one of the things that he says. And yet his sense of urgency, his sense of care, his sense of investment in them is no different than, than it would be with the young Timothy, his protege in the faith. So you could call him a remote pastor, but without the internet. And what he wants to do is he wants to let the masses of people as well as individual people in on what he calls the mystery. This is a get-rich-quick opportunity, but it's not a scheme, and it's not the kind of riches that we tend to think of. He mentions the word riches twice, but then defines riches as being filled with the Word of Christ to recognize that you are filled actually with Christ Himself, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, for the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about what it means for this mystery to get inside of us and to govern our lives uh, from the framework of those who influence and those who are influenced. And ultimately, as you grow and mature as a believer in Christ, you will become both one who influences and one who continues to be influenced by this, this mystery. So those who influence. So let's, let's take a look at Paul and, and his companions. He, he writes in verse 25 that, that, that we have been given a stewardship 
from God. Another word for this is an administration or a leadership uh, opportunity and a leadership responsibility we've been given from God. And one of the things that's very clear as you read through this text is to realize that the life of a Christian is a life that is meant to be spent. We should be tired at the end of a day. We should be tired going into the Lord's day, which is the day of rest that He's given us because we have spent our lives and spent ourselves in service of the mission of Christ uh, for the sake of flourishing people, flourishing places, and flourishing things. And so, so on the one hand, salvation in Christ, belonging to Christ, is a free gift. You do nothing to earn it. You do nothing to deserve it. It, it, It's something that comes to us freely based on the completed, finished work that Jesus Christ heroically accomplished 2,000 years ago and and, 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 and then, then died on the cross, rose from the dead for our flourishing. It was already settled before we were even born that we belong to Him and we cannot unbelong to Him once we belong to Him. And yet, on the other hand, from that point forward, life in Christ is costly. You know, Bonhoeffer said, you know, when Jesus calls somebody to him, he bids that person to come and die. You know, Jesus said it this way, you know, anyone who would come after me must deny themselves daily, take up a cross, and follow me. And so Paul's doing that. He's right, he writes words like this, starting in verse 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And also for those at Laodicea and all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in verse 29, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy and power that is at work in me, struggling with all his energy. So St. Augustine famously said that God always gives to us what God requires or commands of us. He will always resource us for the the things that would be otherwise impossible uh, to to spend ourselves for. So uh, you you, you heard it though, right, In, in Paul's words, grace, therefore toil. Grace, therefore toil, or or as the fourth commandment tells us, Sabbath, then six days of work, six days of spending yourself, and then one full day of rest and worship and community with the people of God. You know, it's what Marva Dawn called a, a holy, royal waste of time, which isn't a waste at all. You know, give that day to rest so that you can spend yourself for six more days. That's the second part of the fourth commandment. It's about resting and, and spending ourselves. You know, one of the stories in, in Jesus' life that comes to mind is the feeding of the 5,000. And I don't know how many times you've read that story, or, or if at all, maybe it's a brand new story for you uh, if you're new to Christianity, but, you know, this is where Jesus and his disciples have spent an entire day serving people. They're, they're tired. They're exhausted, and, and it's starting to, you know, become the night. And, and they encounter 5,000 people, which is really 5,000 men, plus their families. And so the feeding of the 5,000, you know, scholars predicted it was probably closer to 20,000 instead of five. 
And the disciples say to Jesus, because they know, what, they know the kind of person Jesus is, he's going to want to help all these people because they're hungry. And they're like, look, there's 12 of us, 13 including you, Jesus, and there's, there's thousands of them. So send them, Lord. He, they try to get ahead of him. They try to get ahead of what, what they know he's going to do, and that's, that's going to be to tell them to follow him, to serve them. And, and, and they say, send them all into their towns and villages and cities so that they can get themselves something to eat. And Jesus says, you feed them. Come again, Lord, you feed them. We only have a few fish and a few loaves of bread. Leave that part to me, you feed them. You know, maybe this was the beginning of the the, the hospitality industry, right? And, you know, we're going to set up a restaurant here out out in, in, you know, the you know, in the, in the open air, and we're going to feed all these people. And what happens is a miracle happens, because at the end, after all these thousands of people have eaten, there, are, there is more food left over than there was at the beginning. And so Jesus, here's Jesus giving to them what he's requiring of them in the same way that he does for all of us. So here's something about the best Christian influencers. The best Christian influencers often aren't even aware that they are influencers. They're just living a quiet, faithful life that is hard not to notice when you get up close. So, not long ago, uh, there was this kids thing that happened, hundreds and hundreds of people on campus uh, called Vacation Bible School. We do it every, every, um, every summer, and a lot of you volunteered for that. And the meals happened out on the breezeway. There were a bunch of tables. And I remember one night, uh, there, there was a woman serving actually next to my wife. They were, they were serving in the food line, you know, helping people with food. And this particular woman is in her 70s. And, and at, the, uh, at, the, at the tables are, are people half of her age, you know, eating the food that she served them. But what was so remarkable uh, to me is, is just knowing uh, this lovely woman's story. She's in her 70s. She lives a life of quiet faithfulness. Uh, she chose a few years ago to be the uh, lone guardian for a young man in our community with special needs. Uh, she uses a walker. And what was particularly uh, um, striking to me, and this, this was leadership for me, um, she didn't even realize it, was that that you know, she's standing right there in front of her walker, and she's doing this because she has a wrist injury on her strong hand, and she's holding a spoon in her hand and, and supporting her wrist while serving food to people half of her age. And, you know, I, 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 I grabbed some time with her afterwards, and I, I said, look, it's just amazing that you're, you're here and you're, you're, you're doing what you're doing, and I just, I wanna, I would just want you to know how touched I am. Uh, at your faithfulness and the way that you, you so clearly just give yourself away. That seems like the story of your life. And, and, and her, answer to this, her answer to me was this, Jesus has never left me. He's never left me. And I don't know how much longer I have on this earth, but every chance I get to show up for Him it's what I want to do. And, you know, it left me thinking, this is actually a bigger miracle than, than 
thousands of people being fed on some bread and on a handful of bread and fish. A suffering servant who is too occupied being thankful to be bitter. You know, Paul's the same way. This is one of those many letters that Paul writes from prison. And in all of those prison letters, we we don't get any whiff of bitterness, any whiff of victimhood, and any whiff of any of it. He's trying to serve people that he's never met and sees the opportunity to do that. That's what a leader is. The other thing he's willing to do is to confront, to say things that encourage and also say things that sting. You know, he says that his stewardship is to make the Word of God fully known, to preach the whole Scripture, not just parts of it. You know, as as Paul says to the young pastor Timothy, preach the Word of God when it's in season, when it's popular, when it's well-received, when, when it, it feels good uh, to, to others when you preach it, and preach the Word of God when it's out of season, when it confronts and conflicts and disorients. Preach it all and preach it all, all the time. You know, what's notable in this text is that Paul mentions his struggle and the people of Laodicea. In the same sentence. Now, if you know anything about Laodicea, you'll know from Revelation chapter 3 that this was, especially in Laodicea, the church at Laodicea, a group of Christians who actually made Jesus feel nauseated. Not nauseated by them as much as he was nauseated for them, because he was, as they were, as Jesus described, lukewarm. Uh, there was no discernible difference between them and the people around them that did not know Christ. And, and the presenting reason that Jesus gives for this is that they had developed a love affair with money, comfort, and the illusion that they were in control of their lives. And Jesus says this, again, it's Revelation chapter 3, "'You say, Laodiceans, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing.'" not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They have the disease that you could call being middle class in spirit, where Jesus says, hey, the ones who are blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who come to the end of themselves, the ones who can robustly and honestly sing all the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. You know, Scripture brings two things to us when, when it's faithfully preached. There's a surgical element where, where, where the Scriptures come like a scalpel uh, in order per, to perform surgery in order to heal. You know, the, the, the book of Hebrews talks about the Bible as, 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 as a blade that, 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 that cuts through bone and marrow. So why would anybody want to cut through bone and marrow except to remove a cancer? or remove something that is threatening to the body. And so, so this, this scalpel, which the Scriptures also call the sword of the Spirit, is surgical, but it's also military. It's military against, against that which injures, uh, that which disrupts, that which threatens health, so that it can be surgical and healing to the same body, 
And so it's performing two functions at the same time, comforting the afflicted. You know, wherever Jesus went, he's lightening the burden rather than adding to the burdens of those who feel guilty because of, you know, those who feel guilty because of um, regrets and, and shame, and tending to those who are hurting, and tending to those who are afraid. He's always doing that. He's comforting the afflicted, but he's also afflicting the comfortable, as they say. One, one, one person uh, where that was the case was the man that, we've, that history has come to know, know as the rich, young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and asks him the question that he's no doubt been asking his business and money-making mentors and investing mentors all of his life. What must I do to get this result? What must I do, except with Jesus, his question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What are the steps? What's the action plan? What are the best practices to inherit eternal life? He's asking the same questions that, that, that have successfully gotten him to the place of, of wealth and success in the world that he's gotten to. But it's a, it's a silly question because he says, what must I do to inherit? And everybody knows that inheritance is free. And inheritance doesn't cost you anything. And Jesus shepherds him and And he says, well, keep all the commandments. And the man says, well, I've kept them all since I was a child. And he says, are you sure about that? Then give up all of your wealth to the poor and come follow me. And I'll show you what true riches is. Because really, young man, the only thing that you lack is lack. And without lack, you can't have riches. Without poverty, you can't be wealthy. You can't be affluent in the kingdom of God until you come to the end of yourself, until you understand your bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on and he says, y'all, this is worse than it sounds. He says it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eyes of a needle. And of course, the the disciples freak out, well, who can be saved, Lord? And and Jesus says, hey, remember the 5,000, you guys. What's impossible for you is possible with God. Remember who you're talking to. You're talking to the one who created the galaxies by breathing. And then there's this warmth in his heart, all these terms of endearment. You know, I I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together in love, to know the riches and assurance and wisdom and treasures of Christ. I want you to know that even though I'm absent from you in the body, I'm with you in my spirit. My heart is for you. And I'm out here in the prison system filling up, he says, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what on earth could that mean? Because on the cross, Jesus says there's nothing lacking. Everything that Christ has done is sufficient and finished. It is finished. To Telestai, everything's been paid in full. The perfect life has been lived on your behalf, so the pressure's off. And the cost or the price has been paid for your salvation and for your redemption, and Christ has risen from the dead. So the work is complete. So what on earth could Paul mean when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I think the answer to that question rests in Acts chapter 1, where it says, where Luke the historian, who's also a physician, says, I'm going to continue to tell you all that Jesus kept doing through his disciples. So Jesus is ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. But the work of Jesus continues through his disciples. 
So ministry is a lot like parenting, especially in Paul's case. Ministry involves making commitments over and over and over again to love people and to serve people who may or may not love and serve you back. And that is, that is certainly true of the life of Christ. You know, the rich young ruler, it doesn't say that Jesus scolded him when the rich ruler says, I'm going to take my money and I'm going to run. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And it said that on the basis of that, or at least it hints that on the basis of that, he walks away sad, not angry, not feeling judged, but sad. And then even Judas, the betrayer, the son of perdition, the very last name that Jesus gave to Judas as Judas is in the act of betraying him is friend. He says to him in the garden, friend, do what you've come to do. How tragic for Judas. And then, of course, Saul of Tarsus, who, who would later become the writer of this letter. But he's on the road to persecute Christians, to destroy Christians, to kill them. On the way to Damascus, and then the risen Jesus Christ, who has finished his work, encounters the Apostle Paul, meets him, and says, why do you persecute me? You know, the, 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 the knives, the daggers, the executions, those are continuing afflictions to the, Christ, to the Christ who has already, you know, died, risen, and will come again. You know, in the time of Saul of Tarsus, the Christians in Damascus were, were completing what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, because to follow Christ includes sharing in the fellowship of His sufferings. But then later on, Paul talks about himself as the chief of sinners. And, you know, that, that whole passage where he says, I'm the chief of sinners, that's what gets all the press. But, but there are a lot more words after that statement of Paul saying, let me tell you about the mercy of God. And he breaks into doxology and to praise and worship, you know, because, you know, I was this kind of person, a blasphemer, a persecutor, violent. But, I, but, but, but God had mercy on me. Christ had mercy on me. Chief of sinners, huge, merciful, wonderful Christ, who is now in me and who is now in you, the hope of glory. And then what happens to Paul later on when he's rejected? In the same way that he had once rejected the followers of Christ, he's now rejected by many of his childhood friends, by the people that he went to rabbi graduate school with, have now turned against him. And here's what he says in Romans chapter 9. I have unceasing anguish in my heart, not against them, but for them. I have unceasing anguish in my heart, so much so, and Paul, the Apostle Paul is the only one I've ever heard or read saying, daring to say anything like this. This is how deeply enmeshed that, that, that Paul was in the mercy of Christ, so enmeshed that he became the mercy of Christ. He said, if I could give up my own salvation for their sake so that they could know what I know and taste what I taste, I would do it. Influencers. But then those who are influenced. You know, Paul says, I'm absent in body. That's, that's a reminder. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not everywhere all the time. And I'm not omnipotent. I'm not all-powerful. I can't create the changes in you. I can't be Jesus for you. I can only point you to Him. 
you know, he says that, that, that his aim, this is verse 5, is that these people, these dear women and men and children and kids and students and all the rest, his aim is that they be firm in the faith, not faith in Paul, but faith in Christ. And so he says in verse 28, him, Christ, that's who we, we proclaim. We don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Christ. There's one pedestal, and, and there, are, there are two feet that fit on it, and, and, and they're not my feet. They're not Apollos' feet, who was mighty in the Scriptures. They're not Peter's feet, you know, who Jesus called the rock. They're the feet of Christ. So, two things for those who are influenced. Number one, let Jesus be your Jesus. And don't you dare ask or expect or burden somebody else to be your Jesus. No one else can master you like He can. No one else can rescue you like He can. No pastor, no parent, no leader, no figurehead can fill that role. That's why John the Baptist, he's, they're wanting to make him a celebrity. They're all fawning over him, you know, taking selfies, you know, hanging out with my friend John the Baptist, and, and you know, John the Baptist is in the background. And John the Baptist is, is like, no, no, you're, you're missing the whole point. He must increase. I must become less. And in becoming less, John the Baptist becomes great. The way to become a king is to stop acting like one. We're drawn to celebrity for some reason, but, but that was also the case back then. Paul writes this to the Corinthian believers. When one of you says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom, not in whom, but through whom you believe. So we have a a little dog. Her name is Lulu. She is simultaneously dumb and beloved. Here's one of the things that makes her dumb. So we have a, 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 a ritual, a liturgy uh, that we go through every night at dinner, Lulu and I, uh, where I will take a morsel off of my plate and I will drop it on the ground and she will find it like a treasure hunt. She'll eat it, experience nourishment, all the rest. But every now and then, you know, I'll, I'll drop the morsel and she won't come. And it'll make this little splat on the ground and, and, and she won't come. And I'll say, Lulu, come here. And, and she'll be like, oh, oh. And, and, and she'll come, and, and I'll be pointing to what I just dropped on the floor, and she starts sniffing and licking my finger. And then she'll look back at me with this look on her face as if to say, that wasn't tasty. That wasn't nourishing. Is that, is that all you've got? And I'm like, it's right there, you dummy. It's right there. And she, can't, she will not stop looking at my finger. Is the connection happening? I cannot nourish you. Your favorite internet preachers cannot nourish you. Your favorite authors and bloggers cannot nourish you. Or your your favorite Christian celebrity podcasters cannot nourish you. A little hand-raising exercise. Just raise your hand and keep it up until, until it's until it becomes clear it's time to put it down. How many of you have ever had a pastor whose last name is Saul's? Raise your hand. Okay? Whose last name is Benton? Keep your hand up, otherwise take it down. Whose last name is Ortland? Keep it up, otherwise take it down. 
McGowan, keep it up, otherwise take it down. Doyle, keep it up, otherwise take it down. Cooper, keep it up or take it down. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of you. Nine, 10, 11, 12. Twelve of you. On day one of Christ Presbyterian Church, when the first pastor, Cortez Cooper, planted the congregation, there were a thousand people present. Okay? Twelve hands just went up. Another, you know, similar number went up in the earlier service. It would be a smaller number of hands at the other Christ Pres congregations in different parts of town. You, you guys, I hope you understand the point. And that is that we're like index fingers. We're index fingers. We are pointers. And that's it. That's all that we can give. We can give you nothing else but our sin, our weakness, our unfinishedness, and whatever faithfulness that Christ puts in our hearts and enables us to pass on to you. I'm so relieved, and I hope you are too, by the eulogy of King David in Acts chapter 13 where it says that when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he died. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. The end. That's what legacy looks like. The whole purpose of any influencer is to ultimately be forgotten by the world and remembered forever by Christ. That the world might remember Christ. That the world might do this in perpetuity, in remembrance, not of us, but of Him. It's the whole point. Well, let Jesus be your Jesus and Jesus alone and then grow into sainthood. You know, Paul, Paul uses this word of completion to describe these immature, underdeveloped, nominal Christian people. He calls them saints, present tense. That means he's calling them holy ones, people who are set apart, destined for glory. And this is just one of those places where the Bible is filled with words that are 100% true in the theological sense, in the mind of God, and, 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 and also only aspirational in the anthropological sense. In, in other words, we're not there yet. You know, it's like He's given us sainthood, He's clothing us with sainthood, and now the rest of our lives are, are meant to be given and spent to grow into that except it's in the reverse, because this is not about Christ being here, even though we are clothed with His righteousness, but what it looks like to be clothed with His righteousness is the clothing is not on the outside, the clothing's on the inside. Christ in you. And what is in you is one who is bigger than all the galaxies, and, and more powerful and mighty than, 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 than all the galaxies combined. And, and the rest of your life is meant to grow larger in order to occupy the galaxies of power that are inside of you, the dynamite of God that, that, that's inside of you. The rest of your life is meant to become bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and yet you will, you will always remain a size small relative to, to, to the size, the grandeur of the one who's in you until glory, until you become like Him, and you will see Him as He is. The, the, the potentialities are, 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 are unbelievably mysterious and grand. 
In the meantime, you know, th- th- this, is, this is part of what the Lord's Supper is for. The Lord's Supper is, is there for two things. Number one, to remind us that one who is bigger and stronger than all the galaxies resides in us. The whole Christ resides in every Christian. And we so easily forget that. And when we forget that, it becomes very, very difficult to live into it. And we start asking silly questions like, how on earth can all these thousands of people be fed with just a few fish and bread? God, how can that happen? Right? We start asking silly questions like, how can the impossible to us be accomplished by God with whom all things are possible? Those are silly questions. And so we need remembrance. We need to remember the one who's inside of us so that we can start growing on the outside into what's already on the inside. And so let's do that now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, thank you for Jesus who, um, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at your right hand. And he's also mysteriously and and so wonderfully through the the work of the Holy Spirit in us and also through the work of your supper in us. And so, Father, feed us, nourish us, um, stir our memory of what we already have and of who we already have living inside of us that we might live into that more and more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.